Before we get started today, I want to give a special thanks to Hashtag Paid, our top sponsor this week. Uh, I want to say goodbye to influence. I want to say hello to creators. You can get your consumers talking about your brand, buying your product with creator marketing. Uh, find out why creator marketing works up to four times better uh, for your customer acquisition dollars by signing up with hashtag paid. Go to hashtagpaid.com. Thanks very much. There's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC by Pilot House. Hello and welcome to the D2C podcast. I'm Eric Dick. I'm joined by Kyle Guilfoyle as well as Jeff Shannon for a sit down with one of our favorite people in the game, D2C legend, category creator, and trip holder of an actual element of nature, Josh Snow. Uh, it's been up to watch Snow Teeth Whitening's boundless pursuit of scale uh, beyond countless imitators into a game-changing retail strategy, casting a bright light on the future of D2C scaling, which is what we're here to talk about today. Uh, and as a Pilot House team member, we're super thrilled to uh, be part of this journey with Josh and, and Snow. Uh, and today we're going to talk about a concept of D2C 3.0 uh, and a bunch of other exciting things. Welcome, Josh. How are you doing? And before you begin, just tell us, what is, would you say is your specific area of genius, your specific area of expertise that has allowed you to be able to speak on all the amazing things we're about to be able to see? Well, first of all, um, thank you all for having me. Um, you know, I, it's been a delight to work with all of you um, as well. So, um, you know, you can't, you can't go very far alone. And it's, you know, I always say I'm in the people business and I've been very blessed and, and I'm fortunate to have such amazing people, um, you know, uh, on this team. And it's really become, you know, our brand uh, and the community's brand. So it's been really exciting to, you know, be one of the stakeholders who's responsible for Snow's growth and really what it deserves to be. But um, I think in terms of my zone of genius or my genius, um, uh, it's funny because I spend most of my days focused on what I'm not good at because I'm so constantly trying to improve. I would say my genius is challenging status quo. I think chasing that difficulty, um, wanting to be a trailblazer, wanting to, um, wanting to ignite the, uh, aspiration and other entrepreneurs to think bigger, to think differently. Maybe even, you know, it doesn't have to be bigger all the time, but I, I think, um, uh, I find a lot of pride in being, um, the, the, a lot of times the first seal that gets pushed into our penguin that gets pushed into the water in, in the uh, Arctic, um, you know, and sometimes that means you're going to get, you know, chopped in half by a shark. But um, I kind of, I think that's my thrill. And it happens, I think, to be uh, my genius, I would say. Just, uh, just on the note of, um, of, you know, helping entrepreneurs think bigger. Uh, I, I was, I was, talking to you before this uh, this interview and uh, and I noticed that one of your clients shared that you you helped them map out a, a mind-blowing crystal clear vision of how to take their company to a hundred million dollars a year and I'm, I'm wondering if you'd be able to tell us a bit about uh, about that map for sure yeah I mean I I started um, I started on this platform called clarity um, when the followers on my Instagram and stuff I get started 
Um, I like to respond to every message that I can, right? But I've got, you know, every day I'm like 150 text messages behind. I'm 1,500 emails behind. I'm 2,500 Slack messages behind. Um, that's just a normal day in my life. And I, I've, I've learned to um, thrive within that without letting it beat myself up because I haven't had an empty to-do list. I've never been able to check my boxes off since I started Snow. And I would say much many years before that. So um, all that to say that, um, I get an outpour from entrepreneurs who uh, a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs, SaaS entrepreneurs, people making a hundred thousand dollars a year, people making a hundred million and sometimes making a couple of billion dollars a year. And so it's really cool to see those messages come in, but I don't have time to respond to every single one the way that I want to. And so I've been started doing these clarity calls. I've done a few hundred of them. Um, and, uh, I saw Mark Cuban was on there. Somebody said, I want to try that out. And it's been really, honestly, it's been a, it's been a blessing in disguise because, um, you know, I have to charge something for my time, uh, you know, and so uh, there's a lot of content I try to put out there. But when I talk to entrepreneurs in these one-on-one -on -one private calls on Clarity, um, it gives me an opportunity. It's exciting for me. It's solving the Rubik's uh, Cube again. And every time you throw me Rubik's Cube, it has a slightly different combination which changes the difficulty, it changes the challenge. And I feel that there's a lot of similarities to that in D2C and, and entrepreneurship in general. So I get to play devil's advocate sometimes. And on this particular call, um, you know, thinking about scale is something that's, that's, it's totally free. It starts in your brain, it starts in your heart. And your heart is, is the cliche way of saying, what do you actually want? Do you want to have a business that you know provides for five, 10 people, maybe just your family, or do you want generational, you know, something you can hand down to your kids, your grandkids. So it starts in the heart to understand that because if you don't know what you're shooting at, you're gonna miss you know, pretty much every shot and you're gonna waste all your ammo. And so I think it's important for entrepreneurs um, to take a step back and people working in startups, people working in smaller teams, people innovating, even on large teams, Tesla, you name it, to take a step back and it's worked for me at least and think about what are we actually trying to do here? Um, where do all of our self-interest align and try to line that up. And I think that once you figure that out and you say, I want to make an impact, what does that mean? Um, you know, the business has to have millions of customers. What does that mean? And so once you go through that practice, you realize that you have to think about things differently. So um, you can start by the way, snow, um, I was very successful. I had built and sold many businesses before Snow, and I still run multiple businesses in addition to Snow today. Um, Snow is just the one that I'm most known by. Um, and so prior to this, it, it started in my spare bedroom in terms of like shipping out product. We've continued to in-house fulfillment. So even in my very large, nice house, it was still that mentality of starting something up, but um, quickly evolved as you, you know, I didn't know Snow was going to grow this big you know, this fast or have the um, relevance or the prominence as an influencer itself as a brand, like that was kind of the, the, the goal or one of the goals. And it happened a little sooner than we thought from that side of things. Sales could be larger, profits could be bigger. There's a lot of other things, of course. But I think from the artistic direction we took and the stance that we took early on um, has really started to pay off over time. It's created this unique differentiation, which is very important when you want to scale beyond $50 million. Um, you have to have permission from the marketplace in order to do those things. So I just went through that, the map of, you know, take what you're doing right now, 
multiply it by a hundred. So instead of a thousand orders a day coming in, you have a hundred thousand dollars. It's a hundred thousand orders coming in per day. How many people might you need for that? What type of systems might you need for that? And start to take those next best affordable steps in that direction. And I think that it from a from a high up view, that's the quickest way I could answer of how I've had to change my thinking around scale. Love that. And um, just one quick follow up question. Probably not a quick. This is probably a big question actually. But um, you know, in terms of leveling up your thinking, like that's that's a, a you know a, a quantum leap, right? Going from you know a thousand to a hundred thousand. Uh, is there a system that is most often overlooked, or or just something that's often overlooked when it when it go when you you know try to go up by that much? So it's. Uh, and it's a great question because there are multiple levels of it. So it's, it's, you know, the inertia and like the friction you go through as you tear through the layers of that scale, there are different points. Um, and so what we try to do is we try to sharpen our engines so that we can cut through the core as quickly as we can. Um, and you have to have the right team because when you're, when you're digging even in earth, the closer you get to the core, the hotter it is, the deeper you go in the ocean, the more dangerous it is. So you need a team that's willing to t have that risk appetite. And I think that there's a challenge around um, delegation. And I think that delegation and leadership are two completely different things. Um, they get lumped in together. Being a leader means you delegate well. Yes, that is a trait, absolutely. Leadership for when you're, when you're building uh, a business like Snow, it requires um, it requires a certain type of thinking in the sense that we're all here for a mission. The mission is greater than ourselves. The, the problems need to be solved quickly. We all need to wear multiple hats. I think the entrepreneurial spirit, um, I think uh, poor leaders are afraid to hire entrepreneurial type um, uh, teammates. Um, they're intimidated. They're used to being the smartest person in the room. They're used to being the one who talks the most, who says the joke the loudest. Those are egotistical leaders for the most part, and they're challenged by that. I've always really embraced that. I've always wanted uh, my teammates to be better than me. I've always wanted them to be at least at my level. I would get mad when I was in sports because my teammates wouldn't practice with the rigor that I was practicing at. And I would say, guys, why are we doing this? We're doing this to win. Like, why are you even here? You're wasting my time. Like, this sucks. So I think that the, the, the real answer is instilling that culture of kind of things are, things are bigger than all of us. The customer comes first, but ultimately our mission and brand come first. And so like, it's like my job is to take care of the team. And I think that the, one of the biggest struggles is hiring um, in general, but sometimes it's hard for a small team to adapt into a bigger team. Sometimes it's hard for the uh, principals to relinquish control over a lot of those aspects and kind of trust someone in the organization to own that and be responsible. I think my one of my better traits and one of my geniuses, which I really beat myself up over, is I'm a macro manager. So, you know, what that means is I'm leading with high expectations, low pressure. If you put the wrong person there, they've got high expectations they're not going to re reach and no pressure to push beyond that. Um, and so that's difficult for me because I have to put the right person in the right seat and I have to trust them. Here's a credit card. Here's the keys to the car. Here's the keys to the office. Here's my all my identity. You are now me, and you have full control and authority to do what you need to do. And so I think that's a very challenging task because if someone is building an excessive lifestyle around their business, they're going to be 
artificial demands on the success, financial success of business. So if, if I go from spending $10,000 a month to $100,000 a month because I'm just traveling the world and I want to fly private, et cetera, all of a sudden the founding team starts to put this pressure on the financial success and the speed to that, the margins. So I've really, from the beginning, put the discipline in, I'm going to pay myself $60,000 a year. I'm not going to take any distributions from this business. This is our money. This is it. If anything, I'm going to put millions of my own money in so that we don't have to raise money early on and change our vision. So you don't have to do all that. But I think that commitment, A players, top you know players on your team, they can sniff that out. And so I think that's something a lot of people get wrong. They want the $100 million company, but they don't want the $100 million brand. They want the $100 million in income, but they don't want what comes with that. They think they do. So I think really thinking through, is this something I'm going to dedicate 15 years of my life and I may end up broker than when I started? Is that still, do I still feel compelled to do that? If so, you have a chance in any of the thousands of categories to build a disrupting category leader. Josh, that was great, man. Um, can, can you just circle back to, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you talked about hiring entrepreneurial people. The team is what makes the company. We feel the same at Pilot House. We have the same ethos. We hire entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of people don't do that. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your hiring strategy and yeah. how you find these people. Because it's, it's hard. It's fucking difficult. And how you keep them. How, how you keep them engaged. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's just, you know, that's more a battle than anything. Um, when, when, you, when you, you know, if, if you don't have it set up right and you're not on the pulse of it. I am guilty of losing the pulse a couple times a month um, because the team gets bigger and there's more happening and each team member is wearing multiple hats. So you're talking about thousands of micro events that are happening in your organization. Uh, also thousands of private Slack conversations and, you know, water conversations, you know, whatever. So there's a lot going on, but the starting, and by the way, I, I think you guys, you, you guys have a phenomenal team. And I think that we, we mesh very well with entrepreneurial teams um, because our self-interest align. And I think that's very, very important. And so there's also an air that I think uh, resonates from our team that we will trust you with the driver's seat. Like we will, we will trust you with the driver's seat and you can break as much as you need to break if it's creative destruction. And so I think from a hiring perspective, tactically, I found that nothing beats a recruiting um, agency. And I and that's the that's like the least thing, Josh, no thing you would expect me to say, because I'd be like, you know, circumvent the middleman and go direct to the source. Yeah, that's okay. generally my approach. With people, people, the people business is a people business, which means that it's all about who you freaking know. Your network is actually the net worth of the company. So mm -hmm. what I do, and they all charge a similar rate, so, you know, for me, I try to put my fishing line. Ideally, I like to put a fishing net in there. But if I have to operate via fishing line because I'm searching for a specific fish, I'm not going to use the net because it's going to waste time. I don't want to review a thousand applicants from Craigslist or LinkedIn or whatever it might be. I want my, my uh, bounty hunter to, to know exactly what I'm looking for. And then I like to sometimes, if I'm able to, um, pit them against each other. They don't like that. They like exclusivity etc. You sell the vision well enough, you get them excited well enough, um, they will be willing to, to perform for you. So recruiting agents at the high level, if you're looking for extreme talent, just go to Google and search, like in my area, Phoenix, Arizona, 
Phoenix, Arizona marketing recruiter, uh, whatever. And I'm going to find the one with the most traffic, the most likes, the biggest team, because they're all going to charge me the same money. So it's not like I really care. So I'm going to pick a couple of those, talk to them, get them going. The alter the alternative method when I'm kind of snipering, uh, snipe shooting for, you know, a particular candidate, um, that's when I'm using LinkedIn. You know, LinkedIn is beautiful because you can go to a company you really like in the fashion space and say, I love their designs. Let me click on all their employees. Wow, that's the designer that's been there for four years. Let me go ahead and send a LinkedIn message. Cost me a, a dollar or two. I can send them an email and I say, hey, I'm a huge fan of what you've done. It seems like you've been there a while. I'm looking to hire a head of design. I was wondering if I could pay you for 15 minutes of your time to kind of pick your brain. Um, and so that gives me access right away to the head of design at Nike. And, you know, I might not be able to get the head of design of Nike over, although that's my ultimate goal. That'd be nice. That person's going to know people in her network, people on her team that are looking for another opportunity. She might be interested herself. So I do that 10 times. I get two or three responses. And then I'll go back to clarity.fm as well, which is where I do my calls for people. And I'll search in there. I use it as a customer as well. I'm a big user of it. So I'll search in there and I'll put operations. I'll find a few people who are really good in operations, pay them whatever it costs per minute, talk to as long as I need to. And I, I always ask, is there anyone that you've been superbly impressed by throughout your career who would be perfect for this role? And so I'm asking, I'm, I'm cherry picking in less than an hour from people who have a bigger network than me. It's all about timing of finding the right person. If you have enough time, you always find the right person. The problem is you don't have time to find that right person unless they're right in front. So you have to tap into other networks. That's a solid tip uh, just to combine those networks great. in that way uh, to get into that. Uh, I wanted to bring it back to something you said uh, about your ability for, you know, the ability that Snow has had to be a category defining, category creating product. And, and you said you've sort of reached the ubiquitousness in a way faster than you than you thought you might have or the or the uh the fact that you know snow is is the top search on so many different things like you're literally ranking for you know a, a natural element for instance what is it about your approach that's really allowed you to get there faster than you think yeah so i mean one thing one funny uh note is so there's a company called snowflake which people are very well aware of at this point um and Snowflake has been around for a long period of time. They're like a cloud computing, you know, SaaS software um, uh, solution. And they had the number one uh, biggest software IPO in the history of history. Um, and their wow. ticker on the, on the stock exchange um, is SNOW. So what happened is that a couple of weeks ago, Snowflake, um, you know, went public with the stocker stock ticker snow. So everyone is searching snow to see where the price is going because you're seeing the fluctuations. So what was nice is that during that period, we had so much free traffic come in and a good amount of sales. Um, but we were ranking number two for literally just the word snow in the United States. So everybody is searching every news station, CNBC, you name it, it's talking about the number one IPO in history. And it's happening right now and it's called snow and there's all this raise and right now their market cap is 68 billion dollars and i think they made about 400 million last year so the the multiple is so extreme that it's continued to be talked about now we rank a little bit lower for snow and stuff but it was really cool because you could be you know there could be a company going public and they have the pilot house symbol 
but they're like a Ponzi scheme or something. Right. And it's like, that sucks. You know, like we just got a tribute. We got, you know, a, a tr attribution from this great thing we thought was going to be great and ends up being horrible. So the fact that Snowflake was successful and is using the name Snow, which is an element of Earth, but we own it on everything online. It's been a really nice spillover. It's been a positive spillover of sophisticated investors who are now comfortable with the word snow and they have positive attributes to it. So we got lucky there. But how what <laughs> what did we do, you know, in order to uh, uh by the way, I had a bunch of people text me and be like, dude, I can't believe you IPO'd today, or like, oh my God, you went public today. And uh, <laughs> like I knew you're gonna be a multi-billionaire. And and I was like, no, nope, that wasn't us. I was like, trust me, I, I you know, I wish I would have bought some stock, if anything. But um, what we've done is that you want to be, you want to be in the right places at the right time, duh. But you can manufacture that, and so you know um, there have been reports about how the Kardashian family has been really smart, and it kind of leads back to honestly to Paris Hilton. I saw her documentary; she would coordinate with the press. So um, what we've done is that we work closely with the influencers and in different communities from hair, makeup, um, gay, transsexual, you name it, we work with everybody. I mean, we are so diverse with who we work with um, and we do really well with pretty much every category. And so we're working with these creators, these influencers on a more personal level. And by the way, everyone in the team is going to Sephora and Ulta and all these beauty stores every day, Neiman Marcus, Nordstrom. We are constantly um, consuming that and we're trying to um, we're trying to have this vibe that emanates through our brand, and so in order to do that, there are a lot of things from the packaging to the efficacy of the product to how bright you know our LED lights are. There's a lot that goes into that over time. You don't have to think about that up front, but you have to be conscious of it. So anytime I go somewhere and I go, this smells good. What what you know uh, fragrance are they using? And I'll ask the manager, what fragrance is this? Oh, I'm gonna remember that. Um, wow, this jacket is, or this shirt is really high quality. What do they use? Like, I like this. So you, you start to pick these things up and you feed it to your brand and it emanates through the brand because a, a company is ultimately the canvas creation um, of, of a bunch of artists collaborating and it's there and it's signed, you know, that's what's there. And so we're going for that vibe that we, that we are like, we're very true to ourselves. Um, and I think from, and that's a, that's a long answer. The short answer is intense uh, customer acquisition. Um, you know, we said we want to have a million customers as fast as possible. And the um, connection to paid advertising. So from day one, we have been extremely comfortable and extremely aggressive with our paid advertising. Um, and it's continued to be a, a marvel uh, in this space, especially in oral care. I just saw on Flippa, one of uh you know one of the websites that kind of ripped off our copy and ripped off our our imagery and all this stuff which we get a lot of right people are, people don't copy losers but it's it's been exciting because they posted you know they're selling their website and they're making nine thousand dollars a month so then they were one of the most in depth like you know counterfeiters or copy you know whatever you, you know allegedly you know is the case but to do all that work to make nine thousand dollars a day we can make nine thousand dollars in a second sometimes. So it's like the, 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 what happens is if you stick to something and you, you stick to your vision, don't focus so much on competitors, there's this uniqueness that starts to emanate and people cannot, um, at a certain point, you can't, um, 
you can't simply get there by luck. So even if I copied your product, I copied your website, I won't be as successful as you. And there's something there. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to do that. And the best examples of that are Louis Vuitton, Fendi, Prada, Bentley, Bugatti. You can make a Bugatti kit car, but there's something that has, there's a, there's a, a value attached to the brand. The more that we can increase this delta, the less likely people can catch us, the less likely people can charge what we charge. It, we become the cool person. And from the very beginning, even down to price distinction, there was a bit of shock value when we initially launched at $150. There was like, what? Are you kidding me? Where's the 80% off coupon? What's going on here? And you have to use everything you have in that specific project to stand out. Because in this day and age, it takes three seconds to compare shop against 10 brands. What is going to gravitate toward me? What is going to pull me in? And I need some of those elements. So I think from the very beginning, we've thought about packaging, secondary packaging, our Instagram strategy, influencers we work with, what we have them say about our brand, you know, or, or you know, the things we show them so that it comes off as this is cool. This is sexy. This is what I actually want to use. I'm not embarrassed to use this in public. It's something that's exciting. And it's hard to put that into a nutshell, but you have to think, I would say attention to detail and the, the uh, velocity at which we push things out. There's a bit of blitzkrieg in there. It's all at once. And those moments overwhelm the crowd. And then you have to disappear. But if you see what Drake's doing right now, he's not coming out with an album every month, every week. He already made it. So the less you see of him, the more he retains that value. And so we're moving into that phase, I believe, as a brand, at least from a social media perspective. I love it. It's like when you, you just you put your head down and you do what you do, and you have your team all charging beside you, kind of doing the same things. And and by the time you look up again, you have this sort of like latent momentum in a way, or you have all this stuff that you kind of take for granted because you're grinding at it every day. But uh, but I, I I've ex I experienced it at a small scale with what we you know the momentum we've generated with D 2 C so far, and I know exactly what you mean. It's it's really interesting to, to think of that as a differentiator. I wanted to give a special thanks to new sponsor Hook Logistics. Hook Logistics is fulfillment without the fees, worry-free fulfillment for your custom transparent rates for you. They are a 3PL firm that's flipping the fulfillment business on its head with a simple concept: world-class fulfillment and transparent fair rates. On with the show. Could you uh, could you could you tell us about um, uh, could you just expound upon that idea of the less people see of you, the more you retain that value? Yeah, so I was, you know, I one of my favorite hobbies is watching documentaries and that sounds typical and, and uh, boring, but I enjoy them. Um, and, you know, I used to read a lot more, so now I, I don't read as much as I'd like to do. So, you know, I use documentaries. The reason why I bring that up is um, I watch a lot of music documentaries and I've always been fascinated by, um, uh, fascinated by stardom. And I think it's what attracted me, not stardom for me, but I, I love the, the industry. I feel like maybe a hundred years ago, I would have been born in, in Hollywood and became a big agent or something like that. I think that there's an enjoyment around it. I realize spending now enough time in Hollywood that it's not my cup of tea anymore. Um, but I understand its influence, its power. I love the business um, from, from that angle. So, um, you know, I, I think that with Dolly Parton, which is the, the, the documentary I saw yesterday, um, she came out with some bluegrass albums and she tried to kind of reinvent herself over time. But there's a, 
people will put you on a shelf, right? If if you if you've overexposed the the market and you are just everywhere, anywhere, you, there's a certain point of ubiquity that is very damaging for a brand. And we saw with Coach uh, and and Michael Kors, for example, they both faced bankruptcy threat because Coach had this great idea to start selling to Macy's and dealers and all these department stores. And then Coach also started creating factory outlets and their their top line revenue started to grow very quickly. We see this in D2C companies when they over discount or they over offer or they over promise, over promote. So there's uh, the best study of it is understanding which celebrities are still relevant today. Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe. Why are they still prominent today? The, the painters that are still prominent today, because I, I think I'm on a race every day to to stay relevant and to, to not just stay relevant, but to create relevancy um, and create that relevancy to our brand. And it's an ever it's a never ending challenge. And I think that by taking away the supply uh, and letting the demand kind of ruminate, you have an opportunity to, to, to bring something else out. It's why nice chefs bring you small quantities. They want you to, to taste the art more than to fulfill your, to, to satiate your satiation. So I think that when you pull something away for a while, Adele, you know, rolling into deep, all that, she disappeared. Now, a lot of that is famedom and, and fame in general. It's overwhelming, I'm, I'm sure. Wanting to have a family, wanting to have privacy, of, of course. But there is a certain commercial element to that as well, that once they've made it, there's pressure for them to come out. The next stuff they come out with has to be really good because they have this established presence now. They can't write songs on the back of a paper and just sing them and they become hits anymore. They have to really think about it all. So I think that right now we're enjoying our initial rise in the, in fame with the brand and we want to be very careful that um, we don't become so ubiquitous that we're in every retailer everyone's running a sale on our products we lose price control and then we oversaturate the market with our presence and so there's a certain degree and louis vuitton and these guys are kind of the best at it they change based on the season they'll have things that have more logos on them and then they, they control those big the fashion brands control the things that people demand. So they move to a more subtle, um, you know, branding and stuff. And you notice, um, look at extremely wealthy people, especially younger wealthy people, and how they dress. There's a certain statedness that that kind of determines what's acceptable. So if it's Burberry and I'm wearing the all Burberry and every, and that's what's in trend, that means that it's okay to have big logos and to show kind of new money that way. So we're watching all of those trends that happen around us to make sure that we don't fall into the trap like Victoria's Secret, where um, you know they lose that power because too much sex now is not acceptable. That's interesting. Or and, and you don't want to be a brand that ends up at winners, you know, or or necessarily right. Or, or you have to you have to just manage those those presences right. carefully. Uh, I wanted to move a little bit into right. the post that you made a couple of weeks ago, talking about. Uh, category creation, category disruption, and category creation. Uh, Snow is now uh, being sold across a, you know a number of these massive platforms. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of inspired that post and and sort of what that process has been like to get into these cross category vendors? Yeah, you're talking about like retail and and yeah, retail. Yeah, getting in Best Buy, for instance, right. and so you know it's it, retail is something that we have known since day one has had to be um 
you know, it was part of strategy because uh, where do people buy toothpaste? They ran out, they're getting other stuff and it's right in front of them. They grab it. There's a lot of impulse factor. COVID has had an effect in the terms of the confidence level around people ordering stuff online, ordering, you know, all kinds of things now online. So I think that people not wanting to go into physical locations as much have certainly had an impact on retail, but Best Buy, Bed Bath & Beyond, all these people are having some of the best years they've had in a while because the um, higher, potentially higher margin um, uh, income coming from online is really playing well for a retailer that takes, you know, 50% margins on the products they sell. So it's, it's, it's an interesting transition that's happening, but we realize where do people buy oral care? Uh, they buy it online, sure. They buy it through us, etc. But we realized the um, uh, infiltration uh, factor was difficult, and I'll explain that. It's you, when you launch a product that's disruptive or not. But you launch a product, you have your line of first adopters. So you know this was 3D printing. You know you've got maybe 5,000 customers. You have a lot of people who are in the consideration that at a certain point they know they're probably going to buy a drone. And so depending on when you buy your drone, this explains kind of where you fall in that, in that factor. And so when you have something that's over-engineered, um, if you have something that's too difficult to use or it's got a, a naturally small market already, your, your um, you know, first uh, responders essentially, these early adopters, are going to be a small amount. So that's why initially you'll see a, a brand launched or ROAS is 8X, you know, they're spending at lower levels. They're swallowing up and the Facebook algorithm is so good. It can find those similar profiles very better than anyone else. Um, and so it's very scalable. So you have a little baby brand that all of a sudden, baby clothes brand that all of a sudden she went from 1000 a month to 60,000 a month to $300,000 a month. And she has an eight times row as well, that's because those early adopters are most likely to convert. They're more, they trust online shopping. It matches to them. Now you say, go find me 50,000 of those. And Facebook and every other algorithm online is going to say, well, that's a lot more difficult to get into. And so what happens is as you scale with D2C, we continue to be an anomaly in our space uh, in general, but it, it be diminishing returns. You see a lot of big D2C companies going to radio, going to billboard. We've got our billboards out now, we, you know, uh, outdoor stuff. We've got radio, podcast ads, uh, regular TV advertising. You start uh, anything, subway ads. You start to see... Um, these DTC companies who at a certain scale, all business is the same. And so DTC is a phenomenal launch strategy. I think that it's still a zero to hundred million. I think before it was a zero to 300 million. Now it's a zero to hundred million in order for you to scale past a hundred million dollars in most circumstances in DTC, you're going to have to utilize larger networks and the, the stores. And what happened is when DTC launched, it was like, wow, we're going to bypass, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond and Best Buy and swallow all the profit. Well, it turns out that Facebook is the new rent. And so Facebook said, well, we'll take that money. Uh, like two thirds of all venture capital in Silicon Valley go to Facebook or Google. Um, so they've become the new landlords of, of success and their stock has, you know, appreciated handsomely because of it. At that point, you have to realize if you turned off Facebook ads, you wouldn't have a business. And so at a certain point, you have to establish your business where your customers are, and they're not all on Facebook. They might all have accounts on Facebook, but they not, might not all be Facebook shoppers. And so that's starting to change. The ad cost has only gone up. And so it's pushing DTC companies that are trying to scale beyond, you know, everyone's trying to grow. Um, where else are you going to grow? 
And for us, we believe that D2C could eventually be a three to $500 million a year business. Um, but we need to wait for consumer behavior to change some more. And we don't have the trillions that that takes. Um, but Amazon can do it. You know, they've changed a lot of things of expectations from consumers. So I think that the next phase is, you know, you have to understand the full funnel of your of your customer. You have to understand the lifetime value. It's not just about slapping a subscription on something and saying that'll do it. It's like really thinking about the behavior and how you massage that behavior and how you expand your product lines. I think every DTC company can can use 10 more products uh, of their line. So I think that there's a difficulty there that DTC 3.0 is a lot looks a lot more like traditional than anything. And Colgate and, and Crest and all these big brands are coming out with, um, you know, I call them kind of like me too products in terms of, you know, it's like Quip, it's like us, it's like, you know, there's set certain elements that the audience could say that looks like snow or that looks like this. And so I think the big organizations are saying, well, let's create a sub brand that we can compete against with. It'd be cool to have pastel colors. What's happening is, there's ubiquity around D2C branding right now. And that's why you see liquid death and you see some of the people that are very extreme in their uh, positioning. They're starting to stand out now because what happened when MySpace, everybody had a profile, everybody had music when it played. People will always seek out simplicity. So we're trying to get ahead of the curve to remain simple, elegant, sophisticated because we believe that never goes out of style and having a voice. But when everybody tries to have a unique voice that sounds the same, it becomes monotonous. It becomes dead tone. It's like the it's like the gods in high school. They all they all want to look individual, but they all look like gods. Exactly. exactly. Um, how do you how do you go from? I mean, obviously, I, I'm guessing, you know, Josh. I don't know. I don't know the, the the beginning story of Snow, but I'm I'm guessing you guys started as a as a pretty Facebook centric brand, like a lot of DTC brands do. Facebook, right. Instagram, making your sales there profitable. Life is good. You've obviously, like you were just mentioned, that DTC, you know, 3.0. How do you, like, what are the nuts and bolts on a high level of how you turn into a brand that isn't just saying, hey, I spent a thousand bucks today, I made 5,000 bucks today? Because, you know, you're buying a billboard, you yep. might have TV ads, you might have podcast ads, and all that stuff mixed with your Facebook ads. How do you put that all together and say, okay, if I add all this up, it looks like we're going in the right direction, but you, you, you must lose a lot of that fine control. I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. So it is right. But look, this is what this is what what I talk to probably 20 entrepreneurs a week, different levels. And, and I go, what what's your ROAS on TikTok or whatever it is? And they go, Oh, it's like, it's, it's not as good as Facebook. It's like 2.5. And I go, why are you not spending as much as you absolutely can to scale that? And it's like, well, I don't know, I'm kind of afraid if I scale that it's gonna mess with the ROAS. So yeah, there's certainly truth to that. But if I told you, give me 50 bucks, I'll give you 150 bucks versus give me 500 bucks and I'll give you 2000. You know, like the, the multiples are higher. It's a volume game, right? Um, and I think that we got spoiled, right? We got spoiled by the early days of Facebook where we could write a shitty ad, throw it out there, let the lookalike audience do its magic and have a janky little Shopify site with a $99 theme and we were millionaires. Like that. that is just a gold rush, you know? You've got to dig a lot harder and smarter. You know, it's it's a red ocean at this point. The best sharks are the ones that are still there. And so we have some of the best media buyers, copywriters, designers, content creators. I think in the DTC space, we have a lot of them who 
either a part of Snow or work with Snow or work as partners of ours. So we have like, I think some pretty badass people and it's still difficult in terms of scale because if you're trying to make $10 million a month on Facebook, it's just, it's going to be very expensive. You know, you're going to spend 5 million bucks to do it. And so I think that removing that dependence, Facebook has created an addiction to control. It's created an addiction to uh, programmatic. It's, uh, uh, you know, that fine tuning and we're, we're, we're so focused on ROAS that we forget about the other elements of what it takes to build a brand. And yes, to build a business, you must be profitable. You should be profitable. You should have some sorts of cash flow. But to build a brand is a different conversation because um, a lot of the businesses fell into brand creation because they were the first to do something in the D2C space. So they naturally became the Casper of, the Uber of. The first mover is always going to get the master term, the master brand term, Kleenex, Q-tip. They're always going to be the first one to take it. They scream the loudest. But we're at a point now where capital efficiency has become super important. Um, if you're trying to raise money, if you're trying to work with the bank, if you're trying to sell your business, if you're trying to grow your business, regardless, capital efficiency, it's no longer let's raise 300 million bucks. And once we have 10 million people using our you know, Casper mattress, we can maybe sell for 3 billion or go public or whatever it might be. When Casper went public and it shot back, it showed, right, that was a pivotal moment in DC that showed that the, the public markets are still very concerned with capital efficiency. But then Peloton came in and said, well, we're the Netflix of working out. And it seemed like the market and Mirror and all these guys, it seemed like the market was okay with doing eight year projections on monthly financials because they love Netflix so much. So Peloton's went public in the right time. Everything's good. They made billions of dollars, good for them. But I think that over time you have to, you have to relinquish some of that control because for example, nobody's nobody I talk to really is, has a, has an SEO strategy to be proud of. And it's like it's so it's been so focused on ad creative content refresh every day, every day. Oh, it, it ran out. Next, next, next. So we're throwing away amazing creatives that we spend money on because they no longer perform to the ROAS metric. So what happens is we become myopic on the platform. If we can't see ROAS, CPM, boom, 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 boom how much we spend day by day. Brands are built year by year and decade over decade. Businesses are built day by day. And so I think that once a business has gone to a point where they've decided we want to invest in our brand, we want to remove our dependence from what is an addictive drug of Facebook ads, you start little by little. The first thing you should do is SEO. You know, um, and so, you know, we use a company, Certific, um, and they kind of, you know, handle that for us. We don't do that internally. But um, it's something that we're putting a lot more emphasis on. Our Amazon presence, our SEO, just from an online, Pinterest, et cetera. The truth is only two or three ad platforms, maybe less, are going to pay all your bills. It could probably just be Facebook. That's what's going to pay all your bills. That's going to allow you to explore. But what we found is that the recall um, from billboards, the recall when someone's driving down the road, they see a billboard, they listen to us on the radio, they hear us on their favorite podcast, they might not go and use the coupon code there, Joe Rogan. And you're like, wow, Joe Rogan brought us 5,000 bucks. But all of a sudden, Costco is calling you saying, hey, I heard you on the Joe Rogan podcast. We want you in the front of the store. GQ is calling you say, hey, boom, boom, boom. I was just on uh, uh, Vice and GQ with two chains. Didn't cost me any money. They called us and said, hey, you guys have a dope brand. Do you have the most expensive teeth whitener? And we said, yeah, sure, 10,000 bucks. So we put together that device to be on the show. 
I can't tell you the hundreds of people who have filled out, how did you hear of us after the order? And they put in Hulu show, 2 Chain show, whatever, they, wherever they saw it. And so there are sales that spill over from that, but how many millions are driving past out billboard and it's building that pattern recognition in their mind. But if you're solely running a business off Facebook and Shopify, and it's like, what did I spend yesterday? What did I make? Okay, that's exactly my profit. Until you break that thinking and say, what's my quarterly budget to do influencers, 100,000? What's my quarterly budget to test out billboards, 50,000? Okay, mm-hmm. and, and like you kind of set that profit aside, that's reinvesting. What happens is it's way too addicting to stay on Facebook. It's way too easy to blame the media buyer. It's too easy to blame the copy, to blame the election, to blame Mark Zuckerberg. It's easier to blame the big guy, but you do have to do some exploratory. Do we get visibility into it? Not to the level we'd like. It's not the level we're comfortable with, but we've understood that in order for us to become a household name and have that power, we've got to do more things like that. Love that. Love that. Yeah, you, you spoke. One of the questions we had is about attribution. I think you sort of covered it uh, a little bit there and that you're, you obviously can't make it's very hard, I guess, to make micro uh, like or do you do things like when you're when your your billboard is up? Do you notice an, an effect on your on your ads? For instance, do you have anything that you're that you attribute to this other than this idea of just like perpetual momentum and uh, momentum and growth? This is what we did. I mean. And look, I, I'm like, I, I've been media buying for over 10 years. Like I, I, am, I, I love seeing my data by the hour. Um, you know, I refresh all of the different, you know, dashboards we have for the different brands, including Snow. Snow alone has six or seven dashboards that I refresh every day, nice. um, sometimes 30 times a day. Multiply that by the multiple brands I own. I'm checking dashboards 80 times a day like a crack addict. Um, you know, you would think I'm doing like fantasy football or something, but it is that way. It feels that way. And, you know, I check it so much that I can feel in the middle of a dinner if we had a slow hour. Like it's, it's so innate. I'm, I'm working on I'm working on disconnecting my um, validation at the end of the day mm-hmm. to our daily revenue across the brands. That's something I'm still working on. It's very hard because we live we're like stockbrokers. Media buyers are like stockbrokers or day traders. And if we messed up, that eats us all night. We don't want to hang out with anyone. We're focused on it. Like. It's a big deal. And I think there's something around that, which that could be a whole podcast episode on its own. But from an attribution standpoint, with when we're doing radio or TV, we're trying to use text snow to three, two, one, two, one, two. Um, that then they automatically get a Google UTM URL, which we can track in Google Analytics to see how many people from that channel um, responded to the ad, how many clicked and bought. So the the SMS is very important when you're doing out of home. We also um, have getsnow.com instead of trysnow.com. So getsnow.com is the billboard and radio um, URL that we're branding there. Um, and there's a risk with that too, because you, we spent so much money becoming trysnow.com that switching to getsnow.com for the outside stuff was a little bit of a risk, but we needed some trackability. So we redirect that URL with UTMs on it. So anyone coming direct type-ins, anyone texting, and then the radio show hosts and those guys and, their, and the channels will get their own uh, promo code. So, you know, JJR for John, Jay and Rich, um, we'll be able to track it to that. So we've got a few areas there that we're trying to track. It's not a perfect science because a lot of people search snow, snow teeth whitening kit, whatever it is, um, and they click on our Google ad. And that's why Google's always going to have the highest re- return on ad spend. It's not just because of the, the intent, it's the last click all the time, like nine every single time. 
Yep. So we, what we try to do is, and there are platforms, by the way, out there. There's like Rockerbox um, that uh, RVP of e-commerce Eric has been playing with. Um, and Rockerbox, I think it's like 36000 a year and up. I don't know exactly the pricing, but it's not cheap. But it's it's a it's um, Google Analytics at a higher level, I guess. And um, we're trying to understand where someone first touched us. What was that conversion path? And there's a lot of software out there and a lot of people who make claims. Ultimately, asking the customers has been helpful. So at the end of the purchase, we'll say what, when exactly, where did you hear from us or what made you buy? And we'll have sometimes five, 10, 15 options in there. And people, you know, not everyone fills it out, you know, uh, but the ones that do, you get enough anecdotal evidence to be like, okay, I'm seeing Joe Rogan way more than John Jane Rich. That's clearly working out. And then the last thing we check is we go down to the orders and we see before we started doing radio in Phoenix, Arizona, how big was our was our Phoenix, uh, you know, order? How many orders do we get from Phoenix on average? And we can see a lift as a percentage and it's not perfect science again, but we can say, okay, on a typical, you know, day like this, we expect $10,000 of sales from Phoenix. Now it's $15,000 a day and we can see a little bit of a lift the days that the, the reads pop up. So, you know, you kind of have to mesh it around. You go city by city based on your Shopify data and you kind of build it out. It's like how a musician goes on tour. They pull their YouTube stats now and they see where their listeners are. And you go, why are they having a part uh, a concert in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil? Well, that's because they have a lot of listeners there. So we look at our Shopify data and we try to be as methodical as we can. But ultimately, a lot of it is a blind faith in understanding that there's going to be a brand spillover. And I got to tell you, most of the DSC companies that are succeeding doing it. They, they realize that because Facebook ads have become so expensive, all of a sudden TV has become cheap. And it's because before Facebook used to be a third of the cost of TV to acquire a customer and everybody was making a lot of money. And, um, you know, now it's, it's a lot more. So you're kind of looking for cheaper areas and all of a sudden, Things that used to be expensive and out of reach look cheap to you. And it's worth taking that gamble. When we spend $5 million a month on ads for snow, spending 50 grand on TV is a really cheap gamble to take. You know, worst case scenario, we got some brand visibility. It's a cheaper risk. So I think depending on where you're at at scale, but you should start thinking about it a lot sooner than we did even. It's always been a challenge for us to acquire customers because we're disrupting a market. It's a boring market. Oral care is not exciting naturally. We've made it exciting. So we've had an uphill battle since the beginning. You know, we we never sat back and made 10X ROAS and just kind of cruised by. We've always been pushing to the limit. And I think it depends on where you're pushing that, that that's going to determine how quickly you need to move to other sources. It sounds kind of like uh, rebalancing your your stock portfolio or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Diversify exactly. Mm -hmm. Very cool. I, I, you know, I've been kind of going through this list. We, we, we had this article about D 3.0 and and the different areas that that Snow checks off as as you know a breed of, of company that can really get to D 4.0, whatever that is. And the one that really resonated with, with me that I think is the same with you guys that kind of underlies everything you do, which is that you want to become a product and experience first and a marketing and sales company second, right? And I and I think in order to levels you have and to, to diffuse your brand across as many platforms that you have, you have to stand by the fact that you've got this like hermetically sealed brand experience that delights people. 
Um, and that's really the, you know, what your brand scales, like your brand really requires, feels that it, it requires that to really reach the levels of scale that you have and to hold up and to not fall apart or fall to competitors, et cetera. Well, there's, there's a book Peter Till wrote, Zero to One, which I, I, I'm a huge fan of the way that Peter Hill thinks. I don't agree with certain aspects of it, but um, I do believe that, um, I think it's a generally acceptable statement to say that product differentiation um, and, and having a, a product that not only is efficacious um, and, and ideally su um, superior to the efficacy that's standard on the market, so it just works better, that's ideal. Whatever it is, it could be a shoe that's softer, it could be bed sheets that are cooler, whatever it is, that whatever that selling point is, that it needs to work. And the sooner that your product delivers uh, an experience or a result, ideally, the more sticky your product's going to be. And so, um, you know, I think for us, we thought about the product is our handshake. The packaging essentially is the handshake we have. The first physical touch point, it goes from our hands literally to the customer's hands and in their mouth. Like there's a, there's a connection here. And so this is our business card. This is our business card to say, hey, we're snow. Stick around because we got a lot more for you. Start with this. You're going to love it. Let me know what you think. Our packaging needs to say that non-verbally, you know, and, and, and so we think about that as a touch point. And when you get to a certain amount of scale, now there are uh, the massive scale, uh, the success stories are novel products, a mattress, um, you know, whatever. I mean, there's the Shark Tank stuff, the top sellers, Tushy, the little yeah. scrub daddy, the little uh, squatty potty. They're literally uh, molded plastic to help you poop. And then a sponge with holes in it. So I'm getting less sponge for more money. And now I can like spin it around. So these are like novel products. Those, if you want to make a lot of money, like you want to have yachts and private jets, you either have to be in pharmaceutical, biotech, and just a freaking genius. I'm not smart enough for that. I don't want a yacht or private jets either, but I want to build a big business. So we've got to push the boundaries. And in oral care, we found, particularly in teeth whitening, that the design aspects haven't been, you know, hadn't been pushed to the level we thought they could be pushed to. We felt that skincare, makeup, and a lot of other categories had so much competition that almost every brand looked amazing. You saw what happened with Casper in the bed in a box. They all have amazing websites that they paid a million bucks for. They all have amazing ads that are cheeky and witty. So that's the that's the competition that we were looking at. And we wanted to we wanted to be the trailblazer like that. And so I think if you have a product that doesn't work as well, doesn't look as well, uh, you know, whatever it might be. It's you're in the order business, not the reorder business. And so you want to make sure that from day one, your packaging, your emails that go out, your SMSs that go out, everything that you're doing is constantly being looked at. And if you're a premium brand, you got to think about if I went to Louis Vuitton or Ritz Carlton or Four Seasons or I went somewhere that was expensive and nice and elegant, would would our brand fit in this arena? Would it fit in Neiman Marcus and how would it talk and look and act? And so I think you have to think about where your product may eventually be found and think about the progression to that. And I think it starts with a foundationally different product. Um, it could be different formula, different delivery, different style, different whatever. Look at Allbirds making material out of, I don't know what it's made out of, mm -hmm. but the, you know that's something that is a very competitive space that allows them to build a multi-billion dollar brand very quickly by thinking about the materials differently. And I'm seeing a big surge in fashion with materials, there's a brand called the Pangea that makes clothes from like seaweed or something like that. And they've blown up. I mean, they're sold out of everything all the time. Um, and so I think that 
it pushes you to think about the product. If you have a product that is naturally unique, it's made from seaweed, it's easy to talk about, which means that your adoption rate is going to naturally go. You're going to have an, um, an exponential growth curve without having to spend for it. So, you know, it's like if your peanut butter is really good and you give samples everywhere, it's going to naturally just continue and continue and continue to multiply. You're in the reorder and resale business. So if you don't have a great product, they're not going to tell anyone about it. So you are constantly having one-to-one -one transactions with everyone, one-night stands with your customers. I, say, I always tell entrepreneurs, stop having one-night stands with your customers. I love it. I love it. I want to thank you for taking the time today. I want to thank you for being the first penguin in the water. Uh, you know, when, when there are those orcas swimming out there, uh, <laughs> I, I, want, I want to thank you for that, first of all, that vision also. Uh, this is really fun. I think uh, anything else to add there, guys, in, in, in final words? We're, we're excited. We're just super excited for, for what we've been able to do together. Uh, and excited for for yeah whatever projects come down the the hopper. I think there's still I feel like we're in a time. There's a lot of tumultuousness, but I feel like there's a lot of slingshots lying around. There's a lot of slingshots yeah. lying around that you know that you just got to pick up and, and and aim and fire. Absolutely. Cheers. Okay. Well, thanks for that, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, guys. Thanks, talk John. To you, John. Take care. Bye. See you. Thank you.